This is the Voices in Health Law podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andy Dimitrio of the law firm of Lamb and Kawakami, Los Angeles, California. I'm a past uh, section chair of the Health Law Section and currently a member of the ABA's Board of Governors. It's my pleasure today to have as a guest uh, Bruce Howell, who is a longtime volunteer in the health law section, has served in many leadership roles, and is currently practicing law in Portland, Oregon, uh, in a boutique law firm, Howell Health Law, and serves as an adjunct professor of law at the law school at Willamette University. Today, Bruce and I are going to be talking about the uh, recent Supreme Court decision in California versus Texas, which was the third time that the Supreme Court has directly addressed the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. Before we begin, I want to get a disclosure out of the way. None of the views or comments expressed in this podcast represent the position of the American Bar Association or any section, division, or forum thereof, nor do they constitute an expression of any position of my law firm or Bruce's law firm on the issues that uh, we are going to be discussing uh, in this presentation today. And we're gonna have really a conversation today about this decision as opposed to a question and answer session uh, to try and explore both the history behind the case as well as uh, the potential implications in the future. Uh, with that, Bruce, uh, why don't you uh, give us some background about the, the history behind uh, this current decision, including the two prior times that uh, the Affordable Care Act has been before the court. Sure, thanks, Andy. Um, well, this whole thing started in 2010 when the act was signed and the first um, case that came before the Supreme Court was NFIB versus uh, Sebelius. Uh, that case came and was decided in 2012. The case had really a lot of angles to it, but the one that was most important for our purposes is the provision called the individual mandate. That provision required every citizen to have health insurance or pay a penalty for not having it. That provision was essential to the holding by the court that the Affordable Care Act could be constitutional because of the taxing power of Congress. And, uh... Many people scratched their heads on that, um, especially since the government had been saying all along that it was not a tax. Um, but anyway, the uh, long and short of it is that the law survived. The law had several other challenges, but it, again, the most um, uh, important one for our purposes today was a challenge uh, called uh, King v. Burwell. And I think um, uh, there are uh, a lot of criticisms um, of the Affordable Care Act and the way it was drafted because it is not clear in many places. And there was a certain section that um, gave uh, uh, benefits, uh, gave um, uh, support to those who could not afford insurance on state exchanges, but it didn't uh, specifically say um, federal exchanges. However, the court kind of um, ignored that and uh, went ahead and said, look, the whole thing will fall apart if we can't get subsidies on these exchanges all, all over. So what happened then in 2017 when uh, Congress decided that what they would do 
is they would take away any penalty or tax that had to be paid um, for under the individual mandate. And that meant that there was no uh, penalty to be uh, incurred by those who did not have health insurance. And almost immediately, the uh, state of Texas, uh, and I think it was 26 or 27 other states, filed uh, this lawsuit that we're talking about today to invalidate the uh, Affordable Care Act since one, no longer there's there a tax, and number two, it's already unconstitutional. Andy, that's pretty much a, a, a thumbnail sketch. It's, it's a nice summary, Bruce, and, and you know, it, it brings to light a couple of issues uh, uh, that have uh, sort of continually plagued the ACA, which, uh, uh, as you say, there were a number of things where Congress had certain expectations, at least those people who voted for the act had certain expectations about how things would play out. And when those expectations didn't come to pass, they were forced to tack and uh, uh, try and recharacterize in effect uh, what the act was about. Uh, and, and the King v. Burwell case was important because uh, Congress really didn't contemplate that there would be very many federal exchanges uh, under the act. They expected that virtually all of the states uh, would take the encouragement provided in the act and have state exchanges uh, uh, to provide health insurance. And it was only when you know, fewer than 50% uh, of the states actually enacted exchanges that the importance of the federal exchanges became necessary. And there was a risk, as you say, in 2015, that if the court were to determine that, that uh, Congress had exceeded its authority by providing subsidies in those cases, that in fact, there, there would be significant damage to the whole Affordable Care Act program. So as you said, in, in 2017, picking up on Congress's, uh, it really was their failed effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act and they settled for a half a loaf by uh, doing uh, various amendments to the tax laws, including uh, zeroing out uh, a provision that was known as IR, uh, Internal Revenue Code Section 5000A um, to eliminate the, uh, the tax penalty that was there. So an individual who did not have insurance uh, and disclosed that they didn't have insurance was not going to be charged a tax, which was not insubstantial. Uh, uh, the tax rate uh, varied from $675 uh, at the low end to uh, up to a maximum of $2,200 uh, for a family of four, uh, depending on your income level. And since, as you noted, uh, Justice uh, Roberts in the NFIB case had held that the, uh, the constitutionality of the act, uh, at least as far as the individual mandate is concerned, hung on the fact that it was an exercise of the taxing power, uh, the, the various states argued that it was no longer uh, constitutional. And a Texas district court agreed with them uh, on that and went so far as not only to declare that the law was uh, unconstitutional, um, but effectively issue a declaratory order that would have uh, uh, caused the law to be unenforceable anywhere in the United States. Um, this uh, was appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, 
at this point, California and about 14 other states had intervened in the case, uh, in part because originally the, the lawsuit was brought by Texas against Alex Azar as the uh, uh, Health and Human Services Director, as well as uh, the uh, United States government. Well, the government during the Trump administration flipped sides and suddenly decided to no longer defend the act uh, uh, and, and argue that in fact, Congress had uh, intended to render the act unconstitutional by zeroing out the tax, uh, which meant that the uh, California and, and its cohort of about 14 other states, as well as the United States House of Representatives uh, took up the actual defense of the case, which is why we have the very strange titling of this case. Normally uh, you have two parties and that's more or less how it's gonna be reported. This case has started out as Texas versus Azar, became Texas versus the United States, at some point became Texas versus California, also coupled with House of Representatives versus Texas. And so the final decision from the Supreme Court that we have is California versus Texas, which is kind of an odd way of uh, approaching uh, what this case should be called, but that's, that's what's gonna go in the official reports. Now, the Fifth Circuit, um, didn't completely affirm what the district court had done. Um, they agreed with the district court that uh, the states uh, that were challenging the act had standing uh, to bring their lawsuit. And it also agreed that the, by zeroing out the tax provisions that the law was no longer constitutional. However, the, the court of appeal stopped short of completely affirming the district court case because they felt as though the district court had not given sufficient uh, uh, attention to the question of whether the individual mandate was in fact so integral to the act that there was no way to fashion a remedy without declaring the entire act invalid. Uh, and, and their order remanded the case to the district court for further proceedings on this issue, which is called in the trade a severability issue. Uh, could, the, could the individual mandate be be excised from the statute. So that was the position and the, the Fifth Circuit then uh, on bank refused to review the, uh, the decision of the panel. So on to the Supreme Court we go uh, with uh, California and its states filing petition for certiorari. Um, the House of Representatives separately filed a petition for cert. And then uh, Texas actually filed a, uh, a very unusual uh, uh, effort. Normally, the certiorari uh, petition is filed by a party seeking appeal. Texas uh, was filing its own to try and frame the issues for the Supreme Court to decide, including uh, putting front and center the constitutionality of the act and the fact that uh, uh, the mandate was, in fact, inseverable from the rest of the uh, Affordable Care Act. So that is what brought the case to the Supreme Court's attention. Uh, uh, there was an effort made uh, by uh, the, the petitioning states to try and get expedited hearing uh, of the case, which the Supreme Court refused. So it was not heard in the last term. It was deferred to this term. Uh, many people thought that was a clever political ploy to avoid having a decision come down in the middle of the 2020 election campaign. Uh, but whatever the reasons, uh, the case was in fact docketed in the October term of 2020, uh, arguments were made in, in December and uh, uh, the decision just came down last week. 
So that's kind of where we are. And uh, uh, Bruce, have you got any thoughts or comments on, on sort of the procedural history? Well, not, not so much the procedural, but um, certainly what was hanging in the balance was um, the um, uh, no, uh, no pre-existing condition issue. If the, um, uh, if the Affordable Care Act went away, you would lose that. Uh, and that I think is very, very important to many, many people just uh, on a healthcare basis period. Uh, pre-existing conditions and uh, you and I, Andy, have talked about how far and what that whole concept uh, per permeates the industry now. Um, but I think people were very nervous about that. I don't think anybody gave a darn about the individual mandate and whether or not it was a tax or even whether or not this thing was constitutional. They want the, the vast majority of folks, I think, wanted to see um, the severability clause exercised. And then um, it would, uh, it would uh, preserve maybe the guts of this, uh, of this uh, law. But um, Andy, that isn't what happened at the Supreme Court. So why don't you tell us uh, what they decided? Sure. Well, during the, uh, the oral argument, um, uh, virtually all of the justices seemed to be focused on uh, uh, a very technical procedural issue that I alluded to before, and that is uh, the issue of whether the states uh, that were challenging the act and the individuals, there were two individuals who also were parties to this lawsuit who claimed that they were forced to buy insurance by the mandate, even though there was no penalty. Um, the question of whether they had the right to bring the action in the first place. Um, there is a longstanding doctrine uh, uh, of that in order to bring a lawsuit, you have to demonstrate that you have actually been harmed uh, by some action of the government uh, in, in this type of a case. And um, several of the justices were rather skeptical of whether the states in fact were harmed by the individual mandate since it didn't apply to them uh, as states. Uh, and they similarly were concerned about the two individuals who were bringing the lawsuit um, because you cannot achieve standing by complying with a law and, and incurring damages when you weren't obligated to do so. So self-inflicted damage doesn't confer standing upon you. And there also were cases where the court had refused to give someone standing to challenge a law when, they, when there was only a remote risk at best of the law ever being enforced against them. There's a famous case called Poe versus Ullman. Uh, uh, that decided that point. Uh, so in this case, uh, the states, frankly, had a very weak argument about what their ability was to bring the lawsuit in the first place. They tried to argue that they suffered a bunch of administrative costs and damages. The state of Georgia argued that many, many more people signed up for its Medicaid program, which was going to cost it lots of money uh, as a result of uh, the Affordable Care Act generally, but they were having trouble tying that to the actual individual mandate, which is the part of the law that was subject to challenge. So the Supreme Court decides the case and a lot of commentators thought there was a chance they would, they would hang it on the standing issue, but most people thought the court would get to the merits uh, of the issue and probably decide the case on the basis that the mandate was severable from the rest of the act. So that really brings us up to the somewhat surprising decision 
that came out last week that was seven to two uh, against the, the, the challenge to the Affordable Care Act. So uh, Bruce, do you wanna talk a little bit about why that was surprising? Well, it's, uh, yes, <laughs> although it really wasn't as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, that I, in my law training and uh, observing the court over the years, the court uh, will do anything it can. In fact, a lot of courts will do anything they can to avoid the issue of making a decision. And, um, uh, you know, I think the, the first case, the NFIB case uh, was so flawed uh, and it, there were so many uh, glitches in it um, that it, I, I don't think, I think it would have put, if, if it had, if the court had to decide that it was uh, going to reach the merits, it would have been somewhat embarrassing perhaps to some of the justices. And so this is the way uh, they punted, and um, <laughs> so to speak. And I think, um, you know, I, it's a decision that is wonderful for the act, uh, but I don't think this is over yet. Andy? Well, there's a lot of people who, who would think that it is at this point. And what was interesting about the court's approach and, and seven justices uh, uh, ruled against the state of Texas uh, uh, on the basis of standing, six of whom explicitly joined the majority opinion by Justice Breyer, um, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, concurred in that result, um, leaving only Justices Alito and Gorsuch uh, uh, in dissent. Uh, in essence, what, what Justice Breyer said, uh, following my comments from before, is that there was no harm associated with the individual mandate that was suffered by these individual states. Um, there was no enforcement action brought against anybody for the individual mandate. There was no basis that the states could demonstrate where there was a direct relationship between the individual mandate provision and the claimed harms of the state uh, to the states, most of which were administrative costs uh, that they claimed to have incurred in producing forms that individuals needed to file uh, with the IRS. Um, and Justice Breyer noted at, at one point that they've asked us for injunctive relief, but we don't know what it is that we would enjoin here. In, in essence, the, uh, the states hadn't really thought through the theory of what their, their remedy should be, other than attempting to get the court to uh, issue an opinion that the, the law was now unconstitutional. And Justice Breyer plainly stated that that was in the nature of asking the Supreme Court for an advisory opinion on the constitutionality uh, of the Affordable Care Act, and that's something the court just doesn't do. Now, Justice Thomas, while he agreed with the result, uh, clearly showed some sympathy for uh, the position of, of Justices Alito and Gorsuch. Uh, and, and certainly, I'm sure in his mind, he thinks the act is unconstitutional. Unfortunately, uh, he also took the view, though, that this was an argument that the states had not properly made. And he took issue, and I'll talk about Justice Alito's dissent in a minute, with saying, in effect, Justice Alito uh, invented uh, a theory of the case uh, in his dissent, which the states really didn't argue, uh, either in the courts below or in the Supreme Court itself, and therefore, Justice Thomas was going to side with the majority. 
uh, in this case. So that's kind of in summary where we come out. And there was a lot of discussion of a famous case called Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife, which is a Supreme Court case from the mid 80s that dealt with the question of the fact that a harm has to flow directly from a challenged government action. Before I discuss Justice Alito's rather long and detailed dissent, I want to make a couple of comments about the alignment of the uh, court in the majority opinion in this case. The first is to comment on the fact that while they didn't reach the merits, uh, during oral argument, Justice Roberts had expressed a lot of skepticism about what the outcome of the case should be. In essence, he was concerned that by Congress merely zeroing out the mandate, uh, they were trying to invite the court to effectively repeal the Affordable Care Act, something which they could not do. And he expressed considerable concern uh, about that argument being made to the court. Second thing is a comment about Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, uh, who joined the majority in this opinion, uh, which I think surprised a lot of commentators. Uh, when both of them were going through confirmation process, there was an expectation, at least on certain parts, that they would follow a rigidly politically conservative view, uh, particularly Justice Barrett, who, when she was a law professor, had written an article that was very critical of uh, Justice Roberts' reasoning in the NFIB case. And the suggestion was that she would use this opportunity to, in fact, declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. In fact, both of them joined the majority and joined it on the narrow procedural grounds set out by Justice Breyer, which in many respects reflects the fact that they are conservative justices in the traditional sense. And I'm talking about uh, comparing them with people like uh, Frank Furter or John Marshall Harlan II, where by being conservative, they are conservative of the use of judicial power and will only answer the issues that are immediately before them as opposed to reaching out for issues that go beyond uh, what is actually presented to the court. And uh, we have some messages from our sponsors of this podcast series. We'll have a short break for that. The Health Law Section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Alex Partners and Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. Now, Justice Alito, who plainly was put out by the fact that uh, the court sort of dodged the merits of the case, uh, uh, made his way to be able to plunge into it here. And it's interesting because on the same day as California versus Texas came down, uh, uh, Alito also wrote a very long and vigorous dissent in a case called Fulton versus Philadelphia, which dealt with uh, religious rights in the context of uh, uh, agencies that handle adoptions. And um, uh, Alito in that case, uh, actually he was concurring, but he, he really criticized uh, his fellow members of the Supreme Court uh, for not addressing what he thought was the central issue of that case squarely and getting out of it on technical grounds, much as they did in California versus Texas uh, to that question. So Justice Alito though, argued and, and he kind of took the position that the enactment of the entire act constituted a, uh, a government action 
that could be challenged by the states as opposed to focusing as Justice Breyer did on the very narrow question of the mandate being effectively unenforceable because there was zero penalty. He argued that the whole act constituted a government action and the, the basis on which he afforded the state standing, he acknowledged because he had to, that the injuries suffered by the states didn't flow directly from the mandate, but they flowed from other provisions of the act. But what Alito said is, because in his view, the act is unconstitutional, and because in his view, the individual mandate is not severable, it is integral to the entire act, the fact that, that the state suffered any damage as a result of any provision of the act, therefore conferred on them standing to challenge the act. Now, this is a, a somewhat novel position, and it's one that, that Justice Thomas just couldn't wrap his, uh, his, his arms around because he felt like it had not been uh, properly briefed. There wasn't a lot of history of the court making a decision on, on this type of a basis. And it raised a, an issue that actually was discussed by the court in the Fifth Circuit, uh, which is where, is where do you draw the line between ruling on the merits of the case as opposed to the standing of the parties to bring the case in the first place? And Alito seemed to have no trouble uh, uh, with getting past the standing issue by arguing, as he said, that the law is, is unconstitutional. And therefore, if you've suffered any damage as a consequence of the law being enacted, uh, that's enough to confer standing. Uh, and at the moment, that is a position of only two justices, but uh, you can be certain that Justice Alito will be looking for other opportunities uh, uh, to invoke this doctrine. And, and he's certainly sending a signal to Supreme Court advocates that they, they will have him in their corner if they make this type of a challenge to government uh, laws in the future. But having said that, and, and you know, kind of to the, the uh, backside of the discussion about Barrett and Kavanaugh, uh, Alito is, is taking a very activist position uh, in this case. Uh, he's not uh, abiding by the usual strict textualism uh, that he, uh, he claims to characterize his judicial philosophy. Um, uh, he didn't take a conservative approach, which would have been to agree on the standing issue, but really uh, argued for a much broader view that actually got into the merits uh, uh, of the case. And it is clear that uh, had the court engaged on the merits, he would have held that the, uh, uh, the individual mandate is not severable. And if it is unconstitutional, then the entire act is unconstitutional. So that's really where, where Justice Alito comes out. And uh, as I say, maybe it's a cautionary uh, a note for uh, uh, further litigation. Although I, I guess I would disagree slightly, Bruce. I think this may be the last hurrah uh, as far as challenges to the constitutionality of the act. Um, I think that the, the states here may have run out of bullets in terms of things that they can argue about because none of the provisions that the states claimed caused their damage. That is the administrative burdens that they suffered or the Medicaid. Uh, those didn't flow from portions of the act that are arguably unconstitutional. Uh, they needed to win on the unconstitutionality of the mandate. Um, and thus far, the court has not left any breadcrumbs that suggest another avenue for challenge. 
with that, I, 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 talk I would agree with that. <laughs> I agree with you on that. I just right. think that um, uh, if the attacks on this uh, on this uh, law have been relentless, and um, for some odd reason, there's a visceral reaction uh, by many people to having this in place. Um, uh, and it, uh, it, 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 you know, I, having lived in Texas for many years, I do not put uh, anything past the creativity of Texans. And so we, we shall see. <laughs> <laughs> well, beyond that, Bruce, what do you see as, uh, as happening in the wake of this? Obviously, there was a lot of celebration in the White House uh, and certainly on, on the Democratic side of Congress. Um, but do you believe, as, as I do, that uh, uh, following this decision, there will be efforts made to uh, uh, try and reform the Affordable Care Act in some ways and, and arguably make it work better? I think that has to be. I mean, it's been a rocky road for the act uh, on a multitude of levels. Um, and I think uh, this is uh, a very, very important act, and it may um, it may lead uh, with expanded coverage, for example, to other folks. Um, but it, uh, I, I do know one of my uh, former partners was on the board of a hospital, and he said when uh, the um, when the act went into effect, the uh, amount of uninsured in the emergency room dropped mightily. And so um, I, I think it's I think it's here to stay. Um, I think you might have a challenge here or there. But um, I, but I do think it needs to be cleaned up. There's, it, it's a terribly written law. Well, and, and I guess the other possible implication is it may take the wind out of the sails of uh, uh, some people on the far left of the Democratic Party who would want to throw the Affordable Care Act away altogether and start over with uh, whether it's Medicare for all or a much more highly regulated government program. Well, why don't we leave it there, Bruce? This yep. has been a wonderful conversation about uh, a very important decision. And uh, we have some messages from our sponsors of this podcast series. We'll have a short break for that. This concludes uh, our podcast today of uh, Voices in Health Law, which is part of a continuing series from the American Bar Association Health Law Section. Um, this podcast will be uh, available for some time, and uh, we really appreciate uh, the attention of our audience today. Thanks very much, Bruce. Uh, thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to do this with you.